We're in a passage of Scripture this week in the Matthew's Gospel. We started Matthew's Gospel back in December, and it's a very uh, unique Gospel. I love the man who wrote it, uh, Matthew, named after him. Matthew's a unique figure among the disciples. He's known as Matthew the tax collector. And I think sometimes we forget what a heavy burden he carried as being a tax collector. You see, to the Jewish people, a tax collector was viewed as the worst sort of traitor to the nation. You were collecting taxes for a foreign oppressive government. And that's how they would have viewed Matthew. And Matthew, when he sits down to write the good news of Jesus Christ, he writes it to a Jewish audience. The very people that would have viewed him as their as a traitor, he writes to them. Matthew's gospel is filled with Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament passages that a Jewish reader would have understood. It's also written in a way to communicate to a Jewish audience. He's seeking to answer three questions. We've talked about these in week past, but he's seeking to answer this question. Who is the king? All the Jewish people have been wondering that there's a king coming, Messiah's coming. We're waiting for Messiah, and who is he? Second, he wants to answer, where is the kingdom? A Jewish audience would have been saying, we're, we're waiting for a kingdom to come. We want the Roman government kicked out, and we want God to establish his kingdom with, with his king. Where is this kingdom? And third, he seeks to answer this, what does kingdom living look like? And all those speak to us today, but especially that last one. As kingdom people, what does it look like to live in light of the fact that we are kingdom people, that we belong to the kingdom of God? Well, in the first two chapters, we saw the person of the king, that Messiah has to meet certain qualifications. And in chapter 1, the first 17 verses, we saw the ancestry of the king. That you can't be Messiah if you don't come from King David from Abraham, from the tribe of Judah. There's certain qualifications that the king has to meet and that Jesus meets every single one of those, both on his mother's side, which Luke records Jesus' lineage through his mother, Mary, that his bloodline from Mary goes to King David. And then Matthew records his legal lineage, which came through his father, Joseph. So Jesus, with both parents, his birth mother Mary, his adopted father Joseph, he meets the qualifications to be the king. And then in, in verses uh, 18 through 25, we see Jesus' arrival. We see his birth. And in his birth narrative, Joseph, his father, is told what to name him. To name him Jesus, which means God saves. And he names him Jesus for a reason. He says because he will save his people from, the sin, from their sins. And only God can save people from their sins. So right there we see that Jesus is God incarnate, born of a virgin. And it's critical that he's born of a virgin. Because you see, for all of us, we are born with what we call a sin nature. That as soon as you and I have an opportunity to sin, we do so. For those of you who are parents, it doesn't take long to realize that your children are sinful from an early age. I could tell that with my boys. I never taught my children, if your brother is playing with a toy that you want, what you should do is go push him down and take it. I never had to teach that lesson, yet they did that. Why? 
because they were living out their broken, fallen sin nature. I want it. I'll take it. I'll do what I want. I'm the center of the universe. But Jesus, born of a virgin, born without that sin nature. Then we saw in chapter 2 the adoration of the king. We see a response to Jesus. The wise men, we commonly call them, they're magi. These are Gentiles, non-Jewish men. They come seeking the, the king, the Messiah. And they come to worship him. And we see they come to a man named Herod. Herod seeks to kill Jesus. And then we see the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're indifferent to Jesus. And what we see is those are three responses that everybody will have to Jesus. One of those three responses. Either we're going to look at him and say, I want to kill him. I want to destroy him. I don't want anything to do with him. I don't want anything to do with Jesus or his people. I want to destroy them, defame them, bring them down. Or we'll be like the religious leaders who just really don't care. Doesn't really matter. I'm indifferent. But I believe we, we're like those magi. And I pray this is true of each one of us. That we come to worship Jesus. Worship him as God like the magi did. And then we saw at the end of chapter 2 a bunch of prophecies about Jesus that he fulfills. And last week at the beginning of chapter 3, we saw this unique man called John the Baptist. He's the Elijah that would come and prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And we see the announcer of the king. He comes to announce the king's coming to prepare his way. And we see the greatest revival that Israel has seen since the days of Ezra under this man named John the Baptist. He comes and preaches in the desert. All of Jerusalem comes out to him. He preaches a message of repentance for sin, and everybody's coming to see John the Baptist. And this week, we're going to see the anointing of the king. We're going to see the baptism of the king. We're going to see the launching of his public ministry and his baptism. The passage we're covering today is in all four Gospels. All four Gospels tell of Jesus' baptism. It's that important. And we have a very short passage, four or five verses. We'll be in Matthew's Gospel, the end of chapter 3, Matthew 13 through 17. So if you would please, let's stand as we read God's Word. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. If you don't, the words will be on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, Praise be to God. You may be seated. 
God, your word declares that all men are like grass and all our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But your word, your word, O Lord, stands forever. And may this be the word that is preached today. Lord, we recognize unless you speak, nothing of true significance will be spoken here today. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, our passage starts with these words. Then Jesus came. The then connects Jesus to everything that's just happened. John the Baptist, his ministry has started. And Jesus comes to John to connect with his ministry. John's been the forerunner. John has large crowds following to him. It's a revival. People are doing something radical. They're coming out into the desert. And they're being baptized by John the Baptist for the repentance of their sin. They are recognizing we are sinful. They're recognizing our Jewish ancestry isn't enough to make us right with God. No, we must acknowledge our sin and turn from our sinfulness. Now, I mentioned last week John's, John's ministry was quite likely very brief. Most likely it was less than a year. We're told in, in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, that Jesus started his ministry when he was around 30 years of age. Now that year 30, it holds some significance in Scripture. In Numbers chapter 4, we see that a, a Levite could become a priest when he was 30 years old. Later in Numbers chapter 8, they lower that age to 25. And then we see a David under extenuating circumstances in 1 Corinthians chapter 23. David appoints priests that are 20 years old. So it's not like a hard-held number, but there is something unique about that age of 30. In Jewish culture, at age 12 or 13, you would go through what's called a bar mitzvah. And what that word bar mitzvah means, it means son of the commandment. So Jewish people to this day at age 13, their sons and, and their daughters will go through a bar mitzvah, a bar mitzvah. And that's them taking ownership of the commands of God. You've now reached an age where you are responsible for obeying the commands of God. And you'd be considered an adult at age 13 in Jewish culture. But you'd be considered what was known as a young adult. Between ages 13 and 30, most Jewish people in Jesus' day would be known as a young adult. And at age 30 was when you began to be viewed as an older adult, a, a, a wise adult. You've, you've lived enough season of life that people will listen to what you have to say and, and weigh it more heavily. You see, in those early years, 13 to 30, you were doing what would be called plying a trade. You'd be learning what you were going to do for a living. We see some of Jesus' disciples doing that. If you look at John and James, when Jesus calls them, what are they doing? They're fishing. And they're fishing with their father, Zebedee. They're learning to be fishermen. They were learning the trade. And Jesus, first 30 years of his life, we see him living in obscurity living in a small town called Nazareth with maybe 500 people there in this little village. And what is he doing? He's working as a carpenter. Now that word for carpenter, the Greek word for it is tekton. 
And we often think of a carpenter, at least in my culture, we think of somebody who works with wood, but that's not what it was like in Jesus' day. In fact, most carpenters, most tectons, that word could be translated builder, you built in Israel primarily with stone. So Jesus worked with stone. He also would do tasks like maybe making an ox yoke. He would do those sort of things. And Jesus, for 30 years, building, working, in this small town, in obscurity, all the while knowing He's the Son of God. All the while knowing that He has come to save the world from their sins. All the while knowing that's what God has for Him, but the time is not here yet. He's been waiting patiently. And that's often a difficult thing for us to do, is to wait. One of my favorite seasons of life, and I appreciate so many of the the beauty of different seasons of our life. But those years in our 20s where a person is an adult but they're a young adult and they're learning what they're good at and what they're passionate about. They're learning what they're not good at. They're looking and going, what opportunities has God given me to do things and what what doors has he closed? And it's often during our 20s that we learn that I'm not good at this I thought I might like doing this, but nobody seems to be asking me to do more of it. But they're asking me to do more of this because obviously I have a gift here where God starts to take our passions and our opportunities and and line those things up. It's during the season of our 20s where we often learn to work. God has called us to work, but we work in a fallen world. And we learn that work is often very difficult. It's often very challenging, but that it's a God-honoring thing to work. It's a beautiful thing. It's during the season of 20s where many people move from being single to being married. It's during the season of 20s where many people begin to maybe even start a family. It's a unique season of life, but it's where you're figuring out so much of who you are and what you're good at. And I love that season. I'm grateful here at IEC that we have a very diverse body. Diverse not only in nationality and ethnicity, but diverse in age. And that's one of the beautiful things for each generation, for people of different ages, to appreciate the other generations and welcome them. And I'll tell you, those folks in their 20s, they do so much of the leadership in our church, they've got often more time because those of us who are parents, we recognize margins are thin. So I want to thank those who in our 20s, many of them are our worship team, who serve so faithful and so diligently in the church. Thank you. I realize there may be a season where their service has to change. If you're here in your 20s, we would invite you. Invest heavily in the body of Christ. Invest heavily in ministry. It's a beautiful season to do that and to do those things. But it's around age 30 in the Jewish culture where you begin to be respected and viewed as having lived enough life that someone would listen to you. So I suspect that John the Baptist's ministry started at 30, though we can't say that for certain. And John the Baptist's ministry, it's a quick, bright, revival ministry. And then John does this. Everything about John's ministry, he looks at Jesus and goes, follow him. He must increase, I've got to decrease. And many of John's disciples become Jesus' disciples. John's followers become Jesus' followers. Because John takes his whole ministry and goes, My ministry's all been about preparing the way for that guy. You go follow Jesus. That's all of John's ministry. And Jesus here, 
says he came from Galilee. Mark's gospel tells us that he came from Nazareth. So Jesus comes directly from the city where he was raised, Nazareth, where he spent the majority of his life from age 2 to age 30. And he comes for a very specific reason, to be baptized by John. And both of those are important. He's going to be baptized, but John's going to be the one who baptizes him. And Jesus would have walked probably a hundred kilometers over rugged terrain to come to a very difficult spot to be baptized by this man named John the Baptist, who was his cousin, who undoubtedly, they definitely knew of each other. I believe they knew each other well. Their mothers were first cousins. Mary, when she found out she was pregnant, she went to see Elizabeth to gain wisdom and insight and comfort. So they were obviously very close, so I can imagine it. Family gatherings, you've got Jesus and John six months apart, playing together, laughing together. These two knew each other. And Jesus makes this long walk to come to John for a reason, to be baptized by him. Now, this has brought a struggle for many people. In fact, one of the things I do each week is on Tuesday mornings, I meet with several of our staff members, and we look at the passage of Scripture for that week. And we'll ask questions and gain insight, and, and I'll learn what questions do you have and what do you see, and it, it helps me uh, prepare for a sermon in a, in a very diverse church, so it's been very helpful for me. And one of our staff members rightly asked the question, why was Jesus baptized? He hit one of the great issues of this passage, uh, an issue that people have been asking for generations. Why was Jesus baptized? John's baptism was clearly a baptism for sin, for the repentance of sin. Jesus had no sin to be forgiven. Why is he coming to be baptized? It seems to make no sense when we look at it on the surface. It creates a problem. Now, people have sought to answer this in various ways. There's been some ways that are most certainly not accurate. In the second century, there was a gospel, a false gospel called the Gospel of the Hebrews, and they said that Jesus was baptized to please his mother. Now, I believe that's a false reason and a false gospel. Jesus didn't go be baptized to please his mother. Others have said that Jesus, when he was baptized, that's where he received his divinity. Up until that point, he's a mere man, and now he becomes God. Well, Scripture doesn't teach that either. We see that Jesus was the Word. God made flesh. He was born fully God, fully man. So no, that's not a accurate reason for him to come to be baptized. I think there's a few reasons he came to be baptized, and then there's one primary reason that Jesus will give us himself in just a moment. One reason he came was to affirm all that John the Baptist had been teaching. Jesus wants to align himself with John the Baptist. He comes to be baptized by John because everything that John teaches, Jesus says, I agree with him. I'm with that guy. He's been preparing the way for me, and I'm with him. Another reason, Jesus is publicly launching his ministry. This is his coronation, so to speak. Every world ruler, be it a king, a prime minister, a president, when they come into power, there's a ceremony. This is like Jesus' ceremony where he is becoming 
and being recognized as who he already is, the king of the universe, the Messiah, the anointed one, who they've been waiting for. Jesus comes also as an example. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. He was a perfect Jewish man. Jesus' parents, when he was born, they went and offered a dove for forgiveness of sin. Did they need to do that? Jesus had no sin. His parents didn't need to do that, but they obeyed the law perfectly. Jesus came to Passover. We see that three times in his ministry, and we know that he probably was coming every year as a child to offer a lamb for forgiveness of sin. They didn't need to do that. No, Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. And he comes to set an example for us that we're to obey his commands. And symbolically, baptism is a picture of the reason Jesus came. Jesus came to die for the sins of the world, to actually become sin there on the cross, and to raise to new life. So when we baptize, it's literally a picture of death and rebirth. When you put a person under the water, if you held them there for too long, they would die. And in some sense, that could be one of the most merciful things we could do. Send a person on to glory. You're a Christian, we're going to send you on to glory to be with God Almighty. But we don't do that. We raise them to new life, to live for the kingdom and the purposes of God Almighty. So we raise a person to new life. It's a picture of what God has done in our lives. Another reason Jesus is baptized, he comes to identify with sinners. Jesus, in every way possible, a man who never sinned, identifies with sinners. And everyone he encountered was a sinner. Everyone. Yet he comes to identify with him. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 53, 12, a prophecy about Jesus. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he, speaking of Jesus, shall divide the spoil with the strong because he, meaning Jesus, poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with transgressors, meaning sinners. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for our transgressors transgressors. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to deal with sin. John's baptizing for sin. Jesus came to deal with sin. And in his baptism, he's publicly identifying with sinners. Jesus did that throughout his ministry. You may remember in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus goes to a party. Some people refer to it as the Matthew party. And it's a party that the religious leadership would have viewed as a party full of sinners. Now, we know everybody's a sinner. We're all sinful. But there's certain sins that we look at and we go, they're acceptable. They're not quite as bad. Maybe gossip, a little bit of jealousy, subtle idolatry, a half-truth. We look at those sins and go, those aren't so bad, they're acceptable. But then there's sin that we look at and we go, whoa, that sin is, is really bad. Murder, uh, uh, adultery. And Jesus, he is hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes when he goes to Matthew's party. Matthew was such an outcast in the Jewish culture that nobody would hang out with him outside of those that culture had completely rejected. Prostitutes and other tax collectors. 
And Jesus goes and identifies with sinners. He goes and he spends time with sinners. Jesus does it in a way that many would view as scandalous. He hangs out what people would say, that's the worst sort of sinner. And Jesus goes, I came to save whoever we consider the worst sort of sinner. My sacrifice will cover any and all sin that a person can ever commit. So Jesus, in his baptism, he's identifying with us. He's identifying with a sinner. Now in verse 14, it said, John would have prevented him. This phrase here that John would have prevented him, it's in the imperfect tense in the Greek. Now what that means is that John, over and over again, would have prevented him. It's not just John going, I don't want to baptize you. It's him going, I can't do this. Don't, no, I can't baptize you. I'm a sinner, you're not. Over and over again, he tried to prevent Jesus. He said this, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? We see in chapter 3, two groups that John would not baptize. The Pharisees and Sadducees come to John to be baptized, and John calls them a brood of vipers. They are unrepentant, and John will not baptize somebody who will not recognize their sin and turn from it. They don't need to be baptized they were because they have not recognized their brokenness and their sinfulness so he won't baptize here the self-righteous who don't think that they need forgiveness of sin secondly he won't baptize jesus jesus is sinless he says i don't need to be bad i don't need to baptize you you need to baptize me john in john 129 says this this is the day after Jesus' baptism. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what Jesus came to deal with. The greatest problem we've ever had is sin. And Jesus came to deal with it and to identify with each of us. And in Matthew, at the end of verse 15, in chapter 3, it says, Then he consented after Jesus said these words. This is the first time Jesus speaks in Matthew's gospel. It's the first time we hear Jesus say anything other than what he said in Luke's gospel at age 12. This is the first words of Jesus. Let it be so now, for thus is fulfilling to fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus' reason? Why is Jesus baptized? Because he wants to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus has lived a perfectly righteous life and he was going to continue to live a perfectly righteous life because you and I can't live a perfectly righteous life and he's going to fulfill all righteousness by being baptized by John. Baptism, it's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. Yet, depending on which tradition and background you come from, there's often a misunderstanding of baptism. Sometimes, and in some traditions, They'll make baptism equivalent with salvation. Meaning that unless you're baptized, you're not saved. And let me tell you, baptism does not have the power to save you. Only Jesus Christ has the power to save you. We see the thief on the cross. He was never baptized. You do not need to be baptized to be saved. You're saved through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It's this understanding that we need to be baptized to be saved that has led many to push and to rush toward baptism really quickly. I've got to get my children baptized as quickly as possible. If not, they're not saved. This understanding of baptism has also led to many 
who believe that they're in right standing with God because they've been baptized, when you see no evidence of fruit or faithfulness or repentance in their life. I would, I've had the privilege of talking with many people and hearing their testimonies as a pastor. And a testimony I would often hear went something like this. I was baptized as a young person, but I didn't know Jesus. I didn't understand the gospel. I was merely going through the motions. I was doing it maybe because my parents wanted me to do it or my friends were doing it. And I believe that made me okay with God. But I realized later I hadn't been converted. I hadn't become a new creation. That's what Scripture says we are. Born again. That we're fundamentally different when Christ saves us and redeems us. So know this, baptism has no ability to save you. But at the same time, another response to baptism is people will go, well, if it doesn't save me, I don't need to be baptized. I'm okay. There's no reason to be baptized. And again, that's an errant view of baptism. We're commanded to be baptized. When we come to Christ, we call Him our Savior and our Lord. And one of the very first things Jesus commands His people to do in the Great Commission, He says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. A Christian who has not been baptized is walking in disobedience to one of the things that Jesus has commanded them to do. So while baptism doesn't save, if we can't take a step of obedience in baptism, are we going to be able to obey Him in the tougher calls? and the things that are more challenging and more difficult? He's certainly going to pull us and call us to more difficult things. And in baptism, it's a person saying, I'm a part of the body of Christ. Publicly acknowledging. Now, I don't believe a person has to be baptized in a church. You can be baptized in many places. But I think there's something really unique and beautiful about being baptized in a church. Where the church looks and the body goes, we affirm your testimony of having trusted Christ. And that you've publicly attested to that. And we as a church want to help hold you accountable to living out the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. It's where the one becomes a part of the many. Baptism is a beautiful picture of that. Dying to your old self. To live and walk in newness of life through Jesus Christ. A, a, a beautiful, beautiful picture. And Jesus' baptism pictures... His death, burial, and resurrection that will secure righteousness for all of us. He says he does this for righteousness' sake because he's going to secure righteousness for all of us. Now here at IEC, we love doing baptisms. Actually today we had planned to do many baptisms. We were planning to do 20 baptisms, 10 in each service. And uh, I love the days that we do baptisms. It's a beautiful day. But uh, with the COVID uptick, we decided it would be wise to postpone for maybe a month or so. So we're praying that the numbers will go down and we can uh, feel more comfortable doing baptisms very soon. And to those of you who, who are here today, who you were going to be baptized, I'm sad with you. I was excited today to do baptisms, but we will get to those soon. But as a church, we see no reason to rush toward baptism. Now, we don't see any reason to delay it unnecessarily. But we would rather walk with a person and disciple a person in the midst of the process of heading toward baptism. So if you're here today and you haven't been baptized, I would encourage you toward it. 
If you are a Christian, take that step of obedience and be baptized. We'd love to walk with you through it. If this is your church home, what we do is we have a baptism class. We'll have one coming up soon. And we love to connect a person pursuing baptism with an older, wiser Christian who can talk with them, meet with them, encourage them. Sometimes it's a parent. Sometimes it's a youth leader. Sometimes it's someone else. But we love to be able to do that so that as you walk toward the baptism process, it's not just, hey, I'm doing this because my mom told me. I'm doing this because I I don't want to go to hell. I'm doing this. No, we want you to do it because you have been converted. You've been redeemed. You've trusted in Christ. You're a new creation. And we want to walk with a person and hear that story with them. So again, we, we don't see any re- we're not looking to slow down baptisms in any way, but we don't see a reason to rush. So we can walk with a person, hear their story, disciple them, be faithful in that. We love getting to do baptisms here. So if, if you're a person who's considering that, we don't see an age restriction on baptism, so we place no age restriction upon it. But we love to be able to hear that, that person has trusted in Christ. We love to see evidence of new life. You see, if you're a Christian, there'll be evidence in your life that you're a Christian. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of maybe faithfulness. A a Christian, when they see their sin, they repent of it. Because they want to be in right relationship with God. We'd love to see evidence of those things. So Jesus, John consents to baptize him. And it says in verse 16, in verse 16 and 17, we get one of the clearest pictures of the Trinity. And if you're like me, the Trinity is one of those doctrines that's a little tricky to put in a neat box. It can be difficult to understand that we have one God, three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And know this, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Three distinct persons. Our one God, it's not one God who becomes the Father and then becomes the Son and then becomes the Spirit. No, one God, three persons. It's even hard to describe. It's even hard not to get tongue-tied on this one. But this is what Scripture teaches. And if it's something you have a hard time wrapping your mind around at times, welcome to the club. But it's true. And Scripture teaches it. And here we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. The Son is baptized, immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Peter, in his letters, he compares baptism with the flood of Noah. And I believe that's rightly so. It's Scripture, so obviously I believe it's rightly so, but it's a beautiful picture because there's only two times we see the dove in Scripture. About a month and a half ago, I preached in Genesis from Noah, the story of Noah. And we saw that Noah, when the floodwaters were beginning to subside, he sends out a raven. You remember what that raven did? Never came back to Noah. Why? Because the raven goes out and he finds death. Death everywhere. Dead animals, dead humans floating on the water. And the raven is like, this is great. And he eats. And never returns. But when Noah sends out the dove, the dove will not rest on death. The dove will not find peace in death. So the dove returns to Noah twice. And the third time, the dove does not return when it finds dry ground. 
A dove will not rest feeding on death. Feeding on the death of the old life. And it's a picture of us when we find new life. A Christian will never be satisfied feeding on the sin of this world. It'll always leave you empty. There may be a thrill for a moment, but it'll leave you empty, broken. It'll destroy your relationship with God. No, the Christian's like that dove. Noah's name means rest, and the dove will only come and find rest on Noah. And here we see the dove, and at the end of verse 16, it says, coming to rest, coming to Noah on Jesus. The dove comes and rests on Christ. The Holy Spirit finds rest in Him. And you see, as Christians, the Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you. The Holy Spirit can come and rest in you because the ultimate rest is found in the second person of the Trinity, Christ. So here we see a beautiful picture of what God is doing. And in verse 17, we hear the Father speak. This is the first time we hear the Father speak since the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we hear God speak, but we've had 400 years of silence. Now we hear the Son speak. Now we hear God the Father speak. And when God the Father speaks, He quotes from Psalm 2, and He quotes from Isaiah 42, and He says, This is my beloved Son, from Psalm, with whom I'm well pleased, from Isaiah. My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father is pleased with the obedience of the Son, Those sons here today, sons and daughters, some of the greatest words we ever hear from a father is, I'm well pleased. And Jesus hears those words from his heavenly father, that he is well pleased with the son. Well, here at IEC, as I mentioned, we love to celebrate baptism. We practice baptism. We practice what we call believer's baptism. What that means is after a person gives a credible testimony of faith, that we believe that they are a new creation, that they've converted and trusted Christ, we baptize them. Now at the same time, we recognize we're an evangelical church and we love the diversity of our body and we recognize that Bible-believing Christians... There are those within the faith tradition that hold the Bible as true that may hold some different views on baptism. And there's what you call within the the church community what you call open membership and closed membership. A closed membership within a church, and we believe in church membership. That's how we know who our flock is, who our elders are to care for. But a closed membership would say this, unless you practice certain things the exact way we do, you can't be a member. So, for example, our church practices baptism this way, and unless you've been baptized in this way, we won't receive you. Where an open membership says this, anyone who we believe God will receive into his kingdom because of Christ, anyone who we acknowledge as a Christian, we want to welcome into our church. So, some of you, you may come from a faith tradition where you practice what's called paedo-baptism or infant baptism. You're welcome in membership here. It's not our tradition to practice that, but we want to welcome you here because we want to welcome anyone who we would say gives a credible testimony of having trusted Christ. We embrace that diversity 
here at IC. We love that. We welcome that. We're, our elders are excited and celebrate being a church that holds an open membership. That on the secondary and tertiary issues of the church, you don't have to agree on all of those. On the primary ones we do. On the Word of God we do. We're an evangelical church. We're a church that firmly believes the Bible is true. We're a church that firmly believes that no one comes to the Father except through the Son, that you're only saved through Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you've trusted Jesus and haven't been baptized, as kindly and lovingly as I can, I would encourage you to head toward baptism, to begin to pursue it. It's a beautiful thing. We'd love to walk with you and connect with you. I would love to talk with you. Pastor Mike would love to talk to you. Uh, Leah, who's our family discipleship uh, director, we, she would love to talk to you. We'd love to connect you and sit down with you and be able to walk with you through this season. And if you're here today and maybe you come from a different faith tradition, but you hold the Bible as true and Christ is the way, truth, life, and believe you're saved through Him, we welcome you. Again, we don't want to turn away anybody who we believe when we reach glory and reach the kingdom of God, that we're going to see them there. We want to welcome all who trust Christ. So church, I pray that we would be like those who came to John the Baptist, that we would be quick to repent of our sin and head back to Jesus and trust Him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. It is so true, and it's so good, and it's so gracious. And Lord, I know as a sinful, fallen human that there's going to be times I'll misstay something. There'll be times that I'll misinterpret things. Lord, I recognize that in myself. We all need to recognize that in ourselves and be gracious to one another. Lord, but within your word, there are things that are so true, that are undeniable, that are not open for discussion or debate. Your word teaches that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one can come to the Father except through Christ. So Lord, I pray if there's any here today who haven't come to you, haven't trusted in Christ, open their eyes. May the seed of the gospel be resting and planted deeply in their hearts and minds. And Lord, if there are those here today and they haven't walk through baptism maybe it's they're young maybe it's they're waiting for various reasons maybe they're afraid and unsure I pray that you would lead them toward that that they would take that step of publicly pronouncing their faith that they would take that step of obedience and being baptized and seeing that beautiful picture of walking in obedience to you Lord God, we thank you for this body. Lord, this is a body that you've brought together. We believe you've brought each person here today and you've uh, uh, created this body for your glory. It's a diverse body and we celebrate that. Lord, one day, every tribe, tongue, nation will gather at your throne and worship you. And they'll do so because the Lamb of God is worthy and has saved and redeemed us. So Lord, now as we continue in worship, may we worship the Lamb of God who came in the world to save sinners such as each one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.